Amen. Guys, take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Hosea. We're going to be in book of now. The cone of safety has descended. Okay, if you don't know where it is, just turn in your table of contents, right? Nobody look at their neighbor. All right, let them turn. Uh, listen, if you have to look in the table of contents to find Hosea, you're better than my friends that didn't bring their Bible at all. Amen. But if you have a hard time uh, finding it, what you can do is... You can simply go to the New Testament, go to the Gospel of Matthew, and then go left. Then you'll go through some of the uh, minor prophet books there. And if you flip there, pretty soon you will hit the book of Hosea. And we're going to be in chapter 2. Now, last week we kind of started a series through Hosea. Now, Hosea is a wild uh, prophetic book. And, uh, uh, and it's a, a minor prophet, not because it's not important, but because of its small Size. And we've been talking about the relentless love of God, God's relentless love for us. Now, tonight, if there was ever a time for you to pull up the Bible on your phone, uh, to uh, open your Bible to a passage of Scripture, it's tonight because we're going to look at about 22 verses. And we're going to read them all right now, okay? So everybody take a deep breath. Well, you're not going to say anything. I need a deep breath. Starting in verse 1, let's go. Hosea chapter 2, and I'm going to be starting in verse number 1. Verse 1, say to your brethren, my people, and to your sisters, mercy is shown. Bring charges against your mother, bring charges, for she is not my wife, nor am I her husband. Let her put away her harlotries from her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and expose her as in the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and set her like a dry land, and slay her with thirst, and I will have mercy on her children, for they are the children, I will not have mercy on her children, for they are the children of harlotry, for their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has behaved shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers, who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up your way with thorns and wall her in so that she cannot find her pass. She will chase her lovers, uh, but not overtake them. Yes, she will seek them, but not find them. Then she will say, I will go and return to my first husband, for then it was better for me than now. For she did not know that I gave her grain, new wine and oil and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Bel. Therefore, I will return and take away my grain in its time and my new wine in its season. And I and will take back my wool and my linen given to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers. No one shall deliver her from my hand. I will also cause uh, all her mirth to cease, her feast days, her new moons, her Sabbaths, all her appointed feasts. And I will destroy her vines and her fig trees, of which she has said, these are my wages that my lovers have given me, so I will make them a forest and the beasts of the field shall eat them. I will punish her for the days of the bells to which she burned incense. She decked herself with her earrings and jewelry and went after her lovers, but me she forgot, says the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, will bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. Notice the, the, the mood change that just happened in that verse. But before that, it's condemnation and judgment, and God is going to judge. And, and this uh, woman, this is Gomer, if you remember from last week, and she's symbolic for the nation of Israel and their idolatry. And then all of a sudden, we get right here to verse 14. It says, therefore, behold, I will allure her. 
will bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. I will give her her vineyards from there and the valley of Acre as a door of hope. She shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she come up from the land of Egypt. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband and no longer call me my master. For I will take from her mouth the names of the bells and they shall be remembered by their name no more. In that day, I'll make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, with the birds of the air, and with the creeping things of the ground. Bow and sword of battle, I will shatter from, earth, from the earth to make them lie down safely. Verse 19, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. It shall come to pass in that day that I will answer, says the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. The earth shall answer with grain, with new wine, and with oil. They shall answer Jezreel. Then I will sow her for myself in the earth, and I will have mercy on her who had not attained mercy. Then I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. And they shall say, you are my God. Whew. Listen, you know what a plot twist is? You understand when you're watching a movie or a book or reading something and there's a plot twist, right, where all of a sudden the story's going one way, boom, it goes in a completely different direction. That's kind of like what we read. We had a plot twist right here in these verses. I mean, one of the most famous plot verse, uh, twists when I was a little kid was in The Empire Strikes Back. Remember that? Luke and Darth Vader are fighting. They're throwing down. They're fighting it out. And Luke is trying to kill Darth Vader. And Darth Vader is in that moment where he's vulnerable. He looks at Luke. I guess he had a mask on. He looks at Luke and he says, what does he say? Luke, I am your father. Yes, I am your father. Right now, you know that now, like now, everybody knows that Darth Vader's Luke's father. But back then, didn't nobody know it until you walked in the theater, saw the movie and you're like, what? Darth Vader's Luke's dad? Like, I thought this only happened on General Hospital or all my children. But here it is in the middle of my little kid's favorite Star Wars thing. But it's a plot twist. It's where things suddenly and radically change. And that's what we have here tonight. Nobody saw this coming. And this plot twist has a far greater significance than anything in The Empire Strikes Back. Now, as we walk through the first chapter, if you remember from last week, it's clear that God, what God must do in response uh, to this spiritual adultery. We talked about that. And then as you get into the second half, when you see what God is going to do because of this spiritual adultery, he does actually the exact opposite. God does something that probably we would never do. Now, let me give you a little bit of background. When this was written, the nation of Israel is absolutely prosperous. Everything is going great, but they've gone into spiritual complacency at best and full-blown spiritual idolatry at worst. Israel has left the God who has loved them and given them everything. He has rescued them out of Egypt. And now they've chasing after these other gods and the things of the world. Verse 13, look at it. It sums it up pretty good. Look at verse 13. It says, she, now again, she is Gomer, but Gomer is symbolic for Israel at this time. It says, she decked herself with her earrings and jewelry, went after her lovers, but me, she forgot, says the Lord. And so God was not going to let all this rebellion with his people go on forever. He sent Hosea to preach to them and proclaim this message to them that judgment was going to come. But then again, there's that plot twist where we see the message of judgment and punishment is clear. But then it comes with a message of hope and restoration. 
Right? God offers the opportunity for these sinners to avoid the judgment that's coming, right? And, 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 to, and that they deserve for their sin. Hosea is a great example of the truth of the mercy and the grace of God. Again, last week we saw how this book begins. It begins, God called the prophet Hosea to marry a woman who was a prostitute. God told him to do this and to have a family with her. And as you can imagine, that didn't go very good. And now remember, look at this next slide. This is the point of the book. If you want to sum up the book of Hosea, it's that devotion to the Lord is like faithfulness in marriage. Being devoted to God is like being faithful in a marriage. And I think all of us who are married would expect our spouses to be faithful. And that idolatry is a lot like adultery in marriage. And so this evening we're going to take a closer look at God's grace and Israel's sin. And what we're going to see, we're going to kind of just walk through this. We see in the text, number one, take some notes tonight. Number one, the people constantly pursued sin. They were always constantly, relentlessly pursuing sin. Picture this. Now, this is in our text, but this is kind of the scenario. Picture Homer, Homer, Hosea comes home. His wife's name's Gomer. I mean, it's, it's, and so anybody named their kids Gomer lately? Amen. Hosea comes home from a hard day of being a minor prophet. And when he, when he comes home, the house is a wreck and the kids are in the kitchen and every Every potato chip bag is open and there's a mess everywhere. There are the kids sitting in the floor, those three babies, and they got chocolate smeared all over their face. They're dirty. They're gone. And where's your mama? Mama's gone. She's gone. She is nowhere to be found. In this, uh, these verses, Gomer, the wife and the mother, has found a new boyfriend that's promised her the world, and she's packed up and left for good. And so imagine while Hosea is cleaning up the three children for bed, Gomer is out on the town with her new man. This is the picture that we get of Israel's unfaithfulness. There is trouble at the preacher's house. I bet the gossip was swirling. Amen. And uh, Hosea's worst fears have been confirmed, right? The Lord said to him, go and marry Gomer. I want you to know something first. You marry Gomer. She's a prostitute and she's going to be unfaithful. And just like that, she is gone, right? And Hosea speaks to the children. Remember the kids' names from last week? One was named Jezreel. For a child to be named Jezreel in that time would be like us calling a baby Hitler. That's the same reaction. People would be like, what? Jezreel. You know, what a terrible name for a child. The second child was uh, Lorahama. Lorahama uh, meant not loved. All right, so imagine naming one of your babies Hitler. The second baby you're going to name not loved. And then the third one, Loami, which means not mine. Not mine. Right? That's like when your kids get in trouble and you look at your wife and you say, that, that's your kid right there. That's your child, right? But this is this child's name. So one baby's named Hitler, baby Hitler. The second baby is like, we don't love you. The third baby is, that ain't mine. These are the children. And God gave them these names for a reason. But look at verse 2. The first part of verse 2 says, bring charges against your mother. Bring charges. That, that, that word charges there, um, it's not like criminal charges. It's like, have you ever plead the fifth? Plead the fifth. I plead my case. Plead. It's the same word for plead. And so he's saying here, bring charges against your mother. Bring charges for she's not my wife, nor am I her husband. I bet Hosea's fed up. I bet he's fed up. In other words, kids, your mama is gone. 
She's gone back to her old way of living and she's not coming back. But as we'll see here, when a person makes up their mind to depart from God, it's not as easy as leaving a man as they think it, uh, think it is. So the people here, they're chasing after their sin. They're pursuing their sin. They're relentlessly chasing after sin. What were the sins they were guilty of? Write this down. The first one was idolatry. And we see that in the first few verses. God speaks to the children and tells them to rebuke their mother for the unfaithfulness. Israel was guilty of worshiping pagan uh, gods and the, the gods of pagan nations, especially the Canaanite rain god, Baal. Right? He was the Canaanite rain god. Remember that. Whenever there was a drought or famine in the land, they would cry out to Baal to send the rain instead of turning to the Lord who had given them everything. Look at verse number three in your Bible. He says, lest I strip her naked and expose her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness. Again, she, Gomer, is symbolic for Israel. And set her like a dry land and slay her with thirst. I will not have mercy on her children, for they are the children of harlotry. For their mother has played the harlot. She, she who conceived them has behaved shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. God says, you're going to cry out to the God of rain. I'm sending thirst and drought. I'm taking away all these blessings. He's saying, since these, my people are acting like prostitutes, I'm going to shame them publicly and treat them like prostitutes. So they're guilty of idolatry. The next thing, circle this in your notes. They're guilty of ingratitude. Isn't that one of the worst things, ingratitude? Just on a personal level, right? Ungrateful. You know, and we talked about this a couple of weeks that we often think that happy people are grateful people. But the truth is, grateful people are happy people. But ingratitude is ugly and it's ugly to God. Look at verse number five. Again, it says, for she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. She thinks Israel thinks these pagan gods are providing everything for them. God is verse six. Therefore, behold, I'll hedge up your way with thorns and wall her in so that she cannot find her past. She will chase her lovers, but not overtake them. Yes, she will seek them, but not find them. Then she will say, I will go and return to my first husband for then it was better for me than now. Have you ever been in a relationship and then uh, you and somebody break up and then after you've broken up and you've moved on in your life, all of a sudden they call you, text you, slide into your DMs. Do you know what I'm talking about? Right? No? Nobody's ever wanted you back? That is so sad. You were a catch. Amen? You were such a catch and they didn't want you back. What happens? Often, the moment that you move on with your life and everything's going good, this person over here goes, look what I missed out on. He's bald. I bet he can get plugs. It'll work out. It's good. No, I'm kidding. But listen, and that's what we see here. She's like, oh, I'll go back to my first husband. For then it was better for me than now. For she did not know. I gave her grain, new wine, and oil. God multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. Therefore, I will return and take away my grain in its time and my new wine in its season. I will take back my wool and my linen given to cover her nakedness. Instead of thanking God for the blessings that he provided and an amazing attitude of ingratitude, they gave the credit for all the blessings to these pagan gods. Incredible ingratitude. God had every right, every reason to abandon these people, but he doesn't and he chooses to discipline them. One of the first steps towards rebellion against God is always a refusal to thank God for his blessings. That's always the first step. It's to refuse to acknowledge what God has given us, his grace and his mercy. Look at this next slide. 
God will not allow us to enjoy his gifts and also at the same time ignore the giver. To ignore the giver. Think about it. What, and also, this is going to sound like I'm anti-science. What, and what, what ancient pagan cultures accredited to pagan gods like Baal, right? It's the same equivalent to what we do today when we uh, give science credit for everything, right? And somehow there are people that believe you either believe in science or God. No, no, no. I believe in the God who created all true science. Does that make sense? But there are people today that actually worship science. They worship the creation rather than the creator. I mean, you might as well worship a stick just like they would back then. Set up an idol, set up a temple, whatever you wanted to do. A graven images and worship. We think, it is so stupid to worship a piece of wood. But what many people are doing in 2020 is actually worse than worshiping a stick. If you worship the stick, you'd actually be moving up a notch. Science is really just the calculated observation of God's unwavering power in the universe. And I love it. We need to praise him. He's our creator and our sustainer. And we need to praise him for all his wonderful works. Let's not live with a heart of ingratitude. What's the next thing they're guilty of? Write this down. It's also their infidelity. Infidelity. Man, these folks are cheaters, man. They're unfaithful. God is consistently faithful. Israel, they're consistently unfaithful. I mean, they're the, they're the opposite. We're, only consi we're consistent in letting God down. God is consistent in never letting up on us. God's people were guilty of consistent hypocrisy and infidelity. God would no longer put up with their unfaithfulness. He was going to discipline his children just like you would discipline your children if they were constantly obeying you. No matter how lenient of a parent you are, eventually you're going to snap. <laughs> okay? Right? But God isn't snapping in his wisdom and his goodness. He is choosing to discipline his children. Look at verse number 10. He says, now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers and no one shall deliver her from my hand. I will cause all her mirth to cease, her feast days, her new moons, her Sabbaths, all her appointed feasts. Now remember that, put, put that away for just, in verse 12, it says, and I will destroy her vines and her fig trees of which she has said, these are my wages that my lovers have given me. So I will make them a force and the beasts of the field shall eat them. I will punish her for the days of the bells to which she burned incense. She decked herself with her earrings and jewelry and went after her lovers, but me she forgot, says the Lord. These people are still celebrating Jewish Hebrew festivals, holidays, spiritual traditions, but in their hearts, they've already given themselves over to these false idols to these false gods. And so they were, how, how can I say this? They were Jewish on the outside, but they were pagan on the inside. And God knew that when they're going through the motions of the new moons and the festivals and all of that, that they were just going through the motion, motions. They were culturally Jewish, spiritually, absolutely pagan. And so he's going to take away the blessings and he's going to abandon them to their sins. Look at this next slide. One of the greatest judgments God can inflict on any people is to let them have their own way. What is that country? What is that? Thank God for unanswered prayers. Well, there's a lot of, a lot of truth in that. Um, and, um, and so, um, I'm sorry, I'm just thinking about Garth leaving his wife for Trisha Yearwood. I'm sorry. I'm trying to have a hard time. Anyway, and so, uh, but a lot of times we should thank God for unanswered prayers because one of the worst judgments God can infl inflict on us is allowing us to have our way. 
Because we don't know the future. We don't understand sometimes the things that are hurting us, that are for our bad and not for our good. But God does. God is holy and he will not permit his people to enjoy sin and to live on substitutes. Look at this next slide. This is D.L. Moody. I always like to throw his picture up. He has a nice beard. He said, um, he said this, the church is full of people who want one eye for the world and the other eye for the kingdom of God. Therefore, everything is blurred. One eye is long. The other is short. All is confusion. When the spirit of God is on us, the world looks very empty. The world has a very small hold on us. And we begin to let go or hold of it and lay hold of things eternal. This is the church's need today. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, how we need to have the right prescription when we look at life and the world. We need to see things through God's perspective. Ultimately, that's what the wisdom of God is. But if I, if I wear your glasses and you wear my glasses and we have a different prescription, we're not going to see clearly. When you're a believer in Christ Jesus, God has given you new life and a new birth. He has created you to see things with his prescription. And when we refuse to see that, nothing makes sense and we have a hard time finding our way. The Israelites here, they had a bad uh, uh, eyeglass prescription, right? One was, uh, one was different than the other, and they couldn't see where they were going. But this is our problem as the people of God. We claim to know him and love him, but we constantly, persistently pursue after sin. We're guilty of idolatry, ingratitude, and infidelity. And we need to look to Jesus and recognize the worth of what we have in him. What does that song say? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. The people constantly pursued sin and ignored God. But, number two, write this down. God relentlessly pursues sinners. God relentlessly pursues sinners. This is the plot twist. His wife is, Hosea's wife has been constantly unfaithful. She has sold her body to the highest bidder more times than he can count. And you can expect almost any husband in that situation. That's it. I've had enough. I am done with you. I am going to block you on social media. But the people of God here, they've been constantly rebellious. They've run after God's more times than anybody can count. And you would expect God to say, that's it. I've had enough. I am done. But he does the opposite of what we would probably do. And what we have here are these repeated, and the rest of the verses, these I will statements, these promises of God for his people. Look in Hosea chapter 2, verse 14. He says, therefore, behold, I will allure her, will bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. Write that down. That's the first promise that God makes. He says, I will allure. I will draw them to myself. God doesn't try to force his people to love him. said he allures, he wins us over through his grace and love. What's the next promise? Write this down. He says, I will give. I will give. In verse 15, he says, I will give her her vineyards from there. In the valley of Achor, remember that, Achor, as a door of hope, she shall sing there. As in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. That God is promising. He said, I'm going to give you prosperity. I'm going to bless you. And he, again, God is hearing these in Hosea. He keeps changing the names of things. So the Valley of Achor, if you were an Israelite person, you would immediately recognize that is the Valley of Achor means trouble. It's the Valley of Trouble. It's where Achan, you remember when Joshua was leading the people of Israel in the promised land? And when they would go in, they're supposed to wipe the place out and not keep nothing. But there's that one guy, Achan, that had kept some stuff and put it back and hid in his tent. And hid it in his tent. And so nobody knew, but Achan knew and God knew. And the next time the Israelites went out to fight as an army, they got whooped and they got whooped good. And they come back, they're like, we thought God 
was with us? Why, 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 what's going on? And Joshua sought the face of the Lord, and it was revealed that Achan had kept some of that which God had commanded them, don't keep any of it. Don't keep any of it. That happened, and then his whole family was judged because of that. It's a wonderful picture about what happens to your family when you allow yourself to be in rebellion against God and to sin against God because he paid the price, his wife paid the price, his children paid the price, the whole family paid the price. And the same thing will happen to you if you allow yourself to fall victim, victim, to run and pursue sin in your life that sometimes the very people that pay the steepest consequences are the very ones that we say that we care about the most. So if you're a Hebrew, when he says the valley of Achor as a door of hope, the valley of trouble, God is saying, I'm going to change that from what it is and I'm going to make it a door of hope through which Israel would enter into a new life. It's as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. Just as God had rescued the people from the land of Egypt and made a covenant with them, he's going to rescue them yet again. God's third promise, write this down. It's I will remove. God said, I will remove. Now look at verse number 16. It says, and it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband and no longer call me my master for I will take. So I just didn't want to put I will take. So I changed it to remove because that's what he's doing. I'm going to remove from her, from her mouth the names of the bells and they shall be remembered by their name no more. God declares an end of idolatry among his people. They're going to have a new vocabulary and none of these false gods, none of these false pagans are going to have anything to do with it. They're never ever going to be named again. Now God's fourth promise, write this down. We alluded to it just a moment ago. He says he's going to make a covenant. He's going to make a new covenant with his people. A new covenant. Look at verse number 18. It says, in that day, I will make, see these sermons write themselves. I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, with the birds of the air, with the creeping things of the ground. Bow and sword of battle, I will shatter from the earth to make them lie down safely. I will betroth uh, you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and love and kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. God's love of Israel is going to result in Israel yielding to him and entering into a covenant relationship that would last forever and never in. And it includes a restored creation. It includes peace among the nations. This is pointing to a final uh, uh, covenant that God is going to have. He's going to make a new covenant. Next, he also says, write this down, that he is going to answer. He says he will answer. Look at verse 21. It says, it shall come to pass in that day that I will answer, says the Lord. I will answer the heavens. They shall answer the earth. The earth shall answer with grain, with new wine, and with oil. And they shall answer Jezreel. Now, again, this verse is like a, a, a cosmic conversation. God's going to speak to the heavens. The heavens going to speak to the earth. The earth is going to respond with the blessings of God for God's people. The heavens are going to send the rain. The earth is going to bring forth produce. And the Lord is going to send his blessing. It's a picture of a restored universe where sin and death no longer reign. God says he is going to answer. But the final promise is this. Write this down. He says, I will sow. I will sow. Look at verse 23. He says, Then I will sow her for myself in the earth, and I have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. Then I will say to those who are not my people, You are my people. And they shall say, You are my God. 
Uh, the, the image here is the image of God sowing his people in their land the way that a farmer sows seed. And he's going to say, you're my people. They're going to respond, you are my God. But before, I want to go backwards for just a moment before we uh, come to the end of this and look at a few verses that we covered at the beginning. So in your Bible, go back up to verse number four. Verse number four. I said verse four. Uh, verse number seven. It says she would chase her lovers, but not overtake them. Yes, she will seek them, but not find them. Then she will say, I will go and return to my first husband. For then it was better for me than now. For she did not know that I gave her grain, new wine and oil, and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. Now here's how the events, because these events really happened in the life of Hosea, in the life of Gomer. And it's an illustration of God's relationship with Israel. God must have spoken to Hosea and said, Hosea, do you know that your wife is living in the poorest part of town? Yes, Lord. Do you know that she's shacked up with a man that can't provide her daily needs? Right? She doesn't have anything. Yes, Lord. Well, I want you to go down to the marketplace. I want you to buy everything that she needs, everything that she could possibly need, and I want you to give it to her. God says, because that's the way that I'm going to deal with my people. Right? You know how hard that must have been for Hosea to do? It had to have been very difficult, but he did what God commanded. So he went and bought the food and bought the items, and he went up to the area of the city where his, life, his wife was living. It's probably a part of town where a good prophet would never be caught dead. And then he, he didn't look up the wife. He looked up her lover, the man that she was living with. He didn't go to her. He went to him. He probably said, are you the man who is with the daughter of Diblam, uh, Gomer? Are you the man that's, well, yeah, who are you? Well, I'm her husband. Now, you can imagine this dude's like, well, what's, well, what? <laughs> you know, you're like, what, what's the problem? I don't want no trouble. And Hosea says, no, man, I'm not here to cause trouble. I just know you can't take care of her. So I brought these things. I want you to give her these things because I love her. And you know that guy, when Hosea gave him those things, walked away thinking, what a punk. What a punk. Right? But then you know what he did? You know he didn't go home. And our text alludes to this. He didn't go home and give the goods to Gomer and say, look what your husband Hosea dropped off. You know he went home. And said, hey, baby, look what, look what daddy done brought for you. Look what I've got for you. Look at all this that I'm providing. I bet Hosea, I bet, I bet um, a Gomer uh, just threw herself on that man and was just like, oh, it's so wonderful. I knew you could do better than you've been doing. And this is just incredible. And she probably, more than likely, gives him the love that she should have been giving to Hosea. And I think from our text that Hosea must have been lingering and watching and he saw the whole thing, right? Because he wanted to make sure this scumbag was actually going to give what he gave him to give to Gomer actually made it. And he sees the whole thing. And then he comments here in our verses on the nature of her folly. Uh, folly. Look at verse number four. He says, she will chase her lovers, but not overtake them. Yes, she will seek them, but not find them. Then she will say, I will go and return to my first husband, for then it was better for me than now. For she did not know that I gave her grain, that it was me that gave her the new wine. It was me who gave her the oil. 
and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. In other words, they took some of this and they offered it to that false idol, that false god. And it's amazing what Hosea does here. I mean, does love act like that? Does love take valuable money and, and throw it away on what many would say is a worthless woman? Is that how love acts? Now, in this life, probably not very often, but this is the way God acts all the time. That's how he acts towards me and towards you. Sometimes we ignore his love. Sometimes we squander his resources. Sometimes we give the wrong source credit for the resource. And he sees it, but he still loves us and he provides for us. I mean, does God really act like that? Does God really love us like that? Does God still provide for us when we're like that? Absolutely. The answer to the story in the entire Bible is that God does. That while we relentlessly pursue sin, God relentlessly pursues us. Barnhouse wrote this. Listen to this. He said, the pursuing love of God is the greatest wonder of the spiritual universe. We leave God in the heat of our own self-desire and run from his will because we want so much to have our own way. We get to a crossroads and look back in pride thinking that we have outdistanced God. Just as we're about to congratulate ourselves on our achievement of self-enthronement, we feel a touch on our arm and turn in the direction to find him there. My child, he says in great tenderness, I love you. When I saw you running away from all that is good, I pursued you through a shortcut that love knows well and awaited you here at the crossroads. He goes on, he says, we have torn ourselves free from his grasp and rushed off again through the deepest woods and the farthest swamp. And as we look back again, we are sure this time that we have succeeded in escaping from him. But once more, the touch of love is on our other sleeve. And when we turn quickly to find out that he is there pleading with the eyes of love and showing himself once more to be the tender and faithful one, loving to the end. And he, he will always say, my child, my name and nature are love and I must act according to that which I am. So it is that I have pursued you to tell you that when you are tired of your running and your wondering, I will be there to draw you to myself once more. He goes on to say, he says, when we see this love at work through the heart of Hosea, we may wonder if God is really like that. But everything in the word and in experience shows us that he is. He will give man the trees of the forest and the iron in the ground. Then he'll give to man the brains to make an axe from the iron to cut down a tree and fashion it into a cross. He will give man the ability to make a hammer and nails. And when man has the cross and the hammer and the nails, the Lord will allow man to take hold of him and bring him to the cross. He will stretch out his hands upon and allow man to nail him to the cross. And in so doing, will take the sins of man upon himself and make it possible for those who have despised and rejected him to come unto him and know the joy of sins removed and forgiven, to know the assurance of pardon and eternal life, and to enter into the prospect of the hope of glory with him forever. This is even our God, and there is none like him. Have you ever run away from God? Of course you have. Of course you have. Did he take you back? Of course he did. Of course he did. Does he take you back? Absolutely. God's love is like that. And he has done this to teach us to know his love and to come to him so that we'll stop running. Aren't you tired of running? Aren't you tired? You can find rest and blessing and peace in Christ. He loves you so much. Even while you've relentlessly pursued a sinful life, he has pursued you relentlessly every step of the way. Look at this verse in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. 
It says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but as long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Lord, this book of Hosea, it's amazing, Lord, and there's so much in it. Thank you for this gift. Lord, we're grateful that you are long-suffering. God, that you're not slack concerning your promise. Lord, we're grateful that you're not willing that anyone should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We're thankful for such a great salvation. Listen, guys, every head bowed, every eye closed for just a moment. If you're here tonight, God has you here for a reason, and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. What you've done is exactly what we see in Hosea. You're guilty of sin. And sin, in the, really what it is, it's cosmic treason against the king of the universe. And when we sin, we're telling God that we're going to do things our way. And that we think that we know better than God does. And when we rebel against God and we reject his offer of grace and mercy, he tells us in his word that judgment's coming. That there will be a time of judgment. That somebody has to pay for your sin. That either Christ paid for it on the cross or you're going to pay for it in eternity. Someone has to pay. You were born with that truth embedded in your heart. You desire judgment in this life. When somebody does wickedness, when somebody hurts somebody, you want them to pay the price. When somebody wrongs you, you want them to pay the price. In your heart, you have this judgment chip that God has given you. And you know the things that you have done, that you have sinned, that you're not perfect, man. And that you have fallen short of the glory of God. And he promises us that somebody has to pay. You know that in your heart. Someone has to pay. And the good news is that Jesus has paid the price for you and for me, man. When you trust him as Lord and Savior, he forgives you. And he forgives you forever. And he's your only hope. Again, that verse says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some count slackness, long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God does not want you to die in your sin. And he has pursued you and gotten you to the point in the place that you are right now in this moment. Will you receive him? Listen, guys, every head bowed, every eye closed for just a moment. Maybe you're here and you know that you need to pray to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You need to trust him. Now's the time. Why don't you pray a prayer like this? It's not these words, but you can simply talk to your God and say, Father God, I'm a sinner. Lord, I turn. I repent from my sin. No more running. No more hiding. No more doing it my way. Lord, I'm surrendering to you. I'm putting my faith in your death, burial, and resurrection for my salvation. Save me, Jesus. I want to encourage you. You pray a prayer like that. He saved you. Scripture's clear. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Did you call on him? Did you mean it? He saved you. I want to encourage you to make that decision public. The first step for anyone who's born again in Christ is to be baptized, to follow through in baptism. And we'd love to schedule that time for you and pray with you and rejoice with you about what God's doing in your life. Maybe you're here tonight and, and you recognize that you need to be baptized. Man, your salvation and baptism are out of order. It's so common. In Scripture, we're saved and then we're baptized. Why don't you come tonight? We'll schedule that time for you and pray with you. Maybe tonight you recognize that Grace Baptist Church is your church home. This is your church family. Even on Sunday night, you could come and make that official to be a part of the team, to obey God's calling on your life, to serve Him right here at Grace. 
Maybe tonight in this message, God awakened in your heart awareness of the sin in your life. You know that you're saved. You know that you've trusted him. But you also recognize that just like Gomer, sometimes you're guilty of spiritual infidelity. Sometimes you're guilty of spiritual adultery. Sometimes you're guilty of spiritual ingratitude. And you're not living with an awareness and a thankfulness for all the things that God is doing in your life. Repent. Trust Him. He's pursuing you. He loves you. But whatever it is, I want to encourage you to do whatever God has called you to do during this invitation. Father God, we love you so much. Thank you for this moment. Lord, I just pray that your people will respond to your calling. We love you. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Will you stand with us for just a second? You come. I wandered far on.